As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Right now, I am so pleased to say we can head over to the New York Fed. Bloomberg's Kathleen Hayes there with one of the leadership members of the Federal Reserve, New York Fed President John Williams, to answer some of those questions. Kathleen. Lisa, thank you. President Williams, thank you for joining us this morning on Bloomberg Television. So happy to have you. Here we are in the New York Fed Museum in a year when the Fed has been making a lot of history. (laughs) So let's start with uh, the the meeting this week and what what came out of it, because we got the, you know, the the move up to the restrictive rate that was even more restrictive than people thought. And, you know, inflation has stayed high. It's hard to get down, probably harder than you thought it would uh, just a few months ago. With these dots, with this position now, do you think you finally caught up to where you need to be? Well, I think we're we're well on our way there. And I think when you look at uh, the kind of the central tendency of the dots. Uh, my colleagues expect the Fed funds rate to get to, say, 5 to 5.5% five uh, next year. I think that's a, that gets us uh, into that hopefully sufficiently restrictive stance of policy that will bring inflation back to 2%. So I am getting increasingly confident uh, that we're getting uh, closer to that point. Uh, but obviously, we have to watch the data. Uh, the inflation and other data have surprised us, and we, we need to be on the lookout for that. But I, th- I do feel we're in a, getting to a better place. Now, just about two weeks ago, you said that the Fed funds rate has to get above the inflation rate to bring down inflation. Uh, how far above inflation does it have to get? Well, that's that's the question, right? In, in way we talk about this is in terms of sufficiently restrictive to bring inflation back to two percent. So to me, it's really about getting it high enough, and of course, keeping it uh, high for a while, for enough time to really see clear signs inflation is moving back down on uh, on the way to two percent. You know, my view is you have to think about real interest rates, as you said. If you look at again the median dots, if you will, in the in the economic projections that we just put out, you see the real Fed funds rate, say the Fed funds rate minus the core PC inflation, mm-hmm. around one and a half percent. I think that's a reasonable view of uh, restrictive. Again, whether it's sufficiently restrictive, we'll have to watch the data and see. But I think that's, to me, uh, basically where, where I'm thinking right now. Now, there's many top economists, former Fed officials even, <laughs> who are saying you're Look, it's looking more and more like you are going to have to go higher, even than where you are now. Maybe something like six, maybe something heading towards seven percent. Uh, can you see that happening? And, and what what circumstances? What would be happening for that? Do you have to go ahead like that? 
Well, that's definitely not my baseline, as I just indicated. I don't think we'll need to get real interest rates that high. But, of course, things could happen differently uh, than, than we expect and would have to, especially around inflation, but also how, how strong is the economy, even with higher interest rates? Does the, do we still have these imbalances between supply and demand? Right now, I mean, PC inflation is 6% over the last 12 months, and we have clear signs that demand exceeds supply in our economy and our labor market. So to me, the question of how high we have to get to is really going to depend on what we see in inflation and the supply and demand imbalance. Again, my base case is we don't have to get that high. I think we have some favorable developments uh, underway, things that we've been talking about for a long time. Supply chains definitely are getting better around the world. We're seeing that in a lot of different data. And we're also seeing you know, some of the goods prices and import prices come down, a reversal of some of those pandemic era uh, things that pushed up inflation. So we've got a few factors I think are going to bring inflation down to three to three and a half percent next year. Um, but then the real issue is how do we get it all the way to two? Of course it is. But right there, though, is the message from Wednesday that, and this ties in with, are you maybe if you would, might have to go higher, is the message that if it's not coming down as we expect, then we are clearly open to going higher, taking the next step. Well, we're going to have to do what's necessary, again, sufficiently restrictive, to bring inflation down to 2%. And it could be higher than what we've written down. And we have had to increase our interest rate projections. As the data have come in, inflation has been stubbornly high, as you know, many people have said. And we've seen the economy remain very resilient to higher interest rates. Remember, the unemployment rate is 3.7%. Some signs of sl a slowing demand for labor, but still a very, very strong uh, imbalance between supply and demand right now. You know, uh, there were two surprisingly good CPI reports going into this meeting, and so a lot of people thought, well, good news for the Fed. You know, maybe they're not going to be uh, quite as aggressive. Um, but at the same time, what happened, 2023 inflation forecast, boom, goes up. Mm -hmm. what, how did this happen? What's guiding your view on inflation? Again, Two good surprises on CPI, and yet the, the PC core, core and PC overall still can expected to rise. Right. And again, relative to, say, our earlier projections in September, the, you know, I think that you really have to think about what's happening in the inflation data. So we are seeing good news. I like good news on inflation reports. A lot of that's in the goods areas and some of the areas we've been long expecting those inflation rates to come down. So that wasn't so, you know, uh, that's something that we've been expecting to see is part of the baseline forecast. Where inflation is still high is in these core services areas, mm -hmm. the areas that, you know, are probably going to be more persistent and really reflect the imbalance between supply and demand in the labor market and in our overall economy. So sure, we are seeing some good signs on goods and some other categories. I'm also seeing some good signs in the, in the rents for new leases of apartments and houses. So, you know, that inflation should eventually start coming down later in the latter part of next year. But again, in these other core services, that inflation rate is still high. And that really gets to how strong the labor market is. So, sure, some good news, but the underlying issue of core core services inflation is still very much there. Well, you know, your your, your forecast for unemployment next year is a, a big jump, mm -hmm. right? You see it much much uh, weaker, up to uh, almost full percentage point from what you're looking at in September, four point six percent. You're looking for GDP you, uh, to be much weaker than you thought three months right. ago, down to zero point five percent. So. Is this the kind of forecast that is consistent with uh, 
a soft landing? Is it consistent with something maybe not quite that good? Well, I think it is a, it's a, an economy that's continuing to grow. As you pointed out, the median dot uh, is around half a percent growth for this year and for next year. So as an economy that's growing, uh, it's an economy where the unemployment rate is, 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 is rising somewhat. As you mentioned, the, the median would be at 4.6 percent at the end of next year. I, so I don't see this as a recession. We're clearly not in a recession right now based on the data. It is an economy that is growing mo only modestly, and I think it's an economy that's really seen uh, the imbalance issues between supply and demand and diminishing in inflation coming down. Is the retail sales were, were weak across the board pretty much. Uh, is this a canary in the cold mine for where the economy is heading and a part of the economy? You want to get final demand down. Right. Is this maybe an early sign that you're succeeding? Well, we have to look at all of the data on that. And obviously, where we're seeing the signs of the economy slowing is in the housing sector and now in manufacturing. Consumer spending has been kind of jumping around a bit month and month to month, quarter to quarter. It's actually been more up until this latest data, more resilient perhaps than I was expecting. So we just have to, you know, go through all that data and really see kind of the underlying strength in the economy. That data doesn't change my basic view that we're going to have an economy growing modestly over the next year. You know, you're talking about the uh, the. Uh, services x housing right core services x housing is is that your seems like it's the key indicator now we have to see that uh coming down for the fed to be convinced that inflation's moving in the right direction well, I think that is a, it is most closely related in many ways to the state of the labor market and you know domestic price pressures. Some of these other categories, which of course are part of the inflation index, we don't ignore any of them, but they really are about the special factors: right. car prices that skyrocketed, sure. uh, tra transportation costs, and things like that. And then the, I think the housing market, we're already seeing some good indicators eventually right. of that coming down. So this is the area that we're, that's not coming down, and we definitely needed to see it coming down to get to that two percent inflation goal. So. A lot of focus on labor and wages in that part of it, right? That's, that's what's important. That's what uh, Chair Powell pointed out this week. So uh, do you think that there are signs of a wage price spiral right now? Is that one of your concerns? Again, and when you look at CPI is coming down, that's good news. But boy, oh boy, the, the trend is still too much up. For us. Yeah. So I don't see any signs of a wage price spiral of the kind that we saw in the 70s. A couple uh, data points I'd point to. One is uh, inflation expectations have been coming down. Uh, they've been really well anchored for longer run expectations. But we've also seen in our New York Fed survey and in the Michigan survey, shorter term inflation expectations coming down. So I think that we're not seeing that kind of dynamic kick in of, of people expecting higher inflation, demanding higher wage increases because of that. The other is, you know, I really see wages is kind of the barometer, one of the barometers of the strength of the, the labor market about demand and supply. Right. I think wage growth has been very high because labor demand has been really strong relative to available, available supply. As labor demand and supply get better in, in better balance, I think, you know, the wage gains will be more in, inconsistent with, will be more consi consistent with longer term trends and our 2%. What inflation. do you make of the uh, the Southwest Airlines uh, contract that was just signed? They're going to get a 24% uh, increase in wages over the next, uh, what is it, five years, four years, excuse me. Uh, is that a, a concern? Well, you know, we're seeing a lot of adjustment in wages for around the country. I'm not going to point to any specific one. I mean, again, wage increases right now, given where inflation has been, given where the labor market is, are, are still quite high. Um, and so we're watching those indicators. Okay. To me, it's really about tracking how the economy okay. does over the next year, labor demand, supply, and wages. A lot of focus on financial conditions. Uh, yeah. Chair Powell noting that the markets and the Fed are, seem to be working at cross purposes a lot of the time lately. Are you concerned about this push-pull between the Fed and where it's trying to lead and uh, where the markets want to go? 
Well, I, you know, I think we need to be, and we are being clear on what we're trying to, what we're going to achieve, uh, and how we're going to achieve it. I think that, you know, the economic projections and the dot plot we put out provide a, a nice roadmap of how we're seeing the economy and monetary policy over the next couple of years. Uh, and obviously financial conditions depend on a lot of other things than, than just monetary policy. So I always look at a broad set of monetary policy, uh, sorry, financial conditions, understand how that feeds into our, our outlook. Right now, I know that, you know, a lot of, some market participants clearly are more optimistic about inflation coming down. I look at the real interest rates implied by that. I think pretty much everyone understands that real interest rates need to get restricted and stay there for Is a while. Is that an issue for the Fed, though, when you're trying to, um, you're trying to move policy in a certain direction, right? Uh, you want to tighten. And if the markets rally and then financial conditions soften, for whatever interpretation mm -hmm. markets are taking, is that an issue? Does that make the job harder? It doesn't make the job hard, harder, but it's just another one of those factors, like the, you know, what's happening in the global economy, a lot of things that have to feed into our view of where the economy is going and, and then what we need to do. Clearly, to the extent that you know, financial conditions have tightened quite a bit over the past year, consistent with our moving to, towards a restrictive or to a restrictive stance of policy, that's an important part of the transmission of monetary policy of the economy. In keeping with that, I want to ask you one last question, uh, because there's this, we're hearing this a lot, that the, the Fed let inflation get out of control for whatever reason, and that this may have eroded the credibility of the Fed with the markets. Well, how do you respond to that? Well, we're absolutely committed uh, to getting inflation back to our 2% goal, uh, and we're acting in that way. I think we're communicating in that way. So I don't think we've lost the credibility, of course, at all. Uh, I do think that, you know, we are completely united in our focus on getting inflation back to 2%. We've taken extraordinarily strong uh, uh, policy uh, actions over the past year, and as we've shown, we're going to continue to take the actions that are needed to get inflation back to 2%. Price stability is absolutely essential for a strong economy in the long run. We need to get that done, and we will. All right. Well, 2023, here it comes. <laughs> President John Williams, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you. Okay, Lisa, back to you. Great work. Kathleen Hayes with John Williams of the New York Federal Reserve. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Joining us now, Emily Rowland, Co-Chief Investment Strategist at John Hancock Investment Management. Emily, fantastic to catch up with you, always is. I just want to pick up on a theme that I know you're drilling down on. The equity bond performance this week, Emily, you've picked up on it as well. What's it telling you? It's actually pretty refreshing to see that diversification is working again. You have stocks down on the week, bonds up on the week, and that's the type of reaction that makes sense to us. Markets have almost been in this state of being comfortably numb 
given the fact that central banks are implementing the most tightening that we've seen in a generation. The economic data are suggesting that a global recession is likely into 2023. The yield curve is wildly inverted to the tune of 78 basis points and earnings are starting to come off. Those are all things to us that suggest that a recession is likely. And we've seen cyclical areas of the market showing leadership. We've seen European equities having their best quarter, their, their, one of their best quarters in years. And a lot of that cross-asset performance to us just hadn't been jiving with the macroeconomic backdrop. So we're starting to feel a little bit better that things are working as they should. But Emily, this goes against this idea that perhaps we have to have a different playbook this time around. And this is what we've been talking about for a number of weeks now, that we're not necessarily going back to the pre-pandemic investment thesis where if something goes wrong, central banks lower rates and that fuels a risk rally. So does it make sense to you that the relationship between stocks and bonds is reverting back to something that has been traditionally at a time when nothing about this moment is traditional? Yeah, I mean, we think that the playbook is really, you know, you can't, you got to still rely on history here. And we do think that given the fact that the economy is likely to contract next year, central banks ultimately will be cutting in the back half of next year. So we want to be positioned for that. We want to lean into bonds here. We like the idea that bonds are working in a portfolio. And you know, Matt Miskin and I have been talking a lot about the fact that income is very attractive and very competitive versus other parts of the market. So we do think that that playbook comes through again uh, into next year, but it's gonna take some time. The Fed has been incredibly just dogmatic in their approach to fighting inflation. We've heard it time and time again, but we know that the Fed is looking at lagging economic data, employment, inflation, especially services inflation. Many of your guests have talked about the fact that it's very, very sticky, and it's probably going to be too late Uh, for the Fed to uh, really sort of reverse course uh, quickly into next year. They're going to cause this economic slowdown and then they're going to have to cut. So Savita Subramanian, uh, this is something that John has been talking about, really pointed out that there still is this feeling that if that is the playbook, then go into big tech. And that's what so many people are doing. And she pushes back against that and says that doesn't necessarily seem like the prudent play. Where do you feel on the leadership, on which are the stocks that can continue to drive upward some of the equity performance at a time if we're reverting back to a playbook that's familiar? Yeah, I would agree. The playbook from a cross-asset perspective within equities might be a little bit different this time. It was always that, you know, we looked to grow stocks. We wanted companies that were able to, you know, produce that organic growth in a slowing backdrop. And now we're not really seeing that. A lot of the growth in technology stocks was pulled forward during the height of the pandemic. Think about all the stuff that we bought, whether it was online shopping or, you know, conferencing tools or laptops for the kids. A lot of that growth and demand was pulled forward. And so we're seeing this period in which the baton is being handed over to the old economy. You know, we look at the value side of the house, which is showing some resilience here. So we want to be thoughtful about where we're going in growth where we're going in value, areas like healthcare, one of our favorite sectors, very high quality, great balance sheets, cash on their balance sheets, organic growth drivers. But we also like your kind of classic S&P 500 tech companies, 
ones with a lot of cash. We don't want to own companies that need to tap the capital markets in order to grow. We don't want to own unprofitable technology companies in this environment, but, but some areas, carefully selected areas of the technology complex to us still make sense paired with value. So Emily, one thing that you've said is that for the most part, equities are not acting like a recession is coming. Can I ask you where you would look for that? and where you think we are further along in the adjustment process, perhaps relative to other parts of the equity market. Yeah, it is so amazing to see this re-rating in stocks that began in the beginning of the quarter. We saw the S&P 500 start at 15 times forward earnings, and now we're trading at around 17 and a half, which means that stocks are now more expensive than their 20-year average. So we've seen this big re-rating, especially in more cyclical, economically sensitive areas of the market, energy stocks doing better, even with oil prices coming down a bit, pretty notable dynamic here. So we would look to find areas that are already priced for a recession. There aren't many. Uh, we, Matt and I have used the analogy of there's an equity store and a bond store for your for your Christmas shopping. And, you know, the equity store, there's not very much on sale. Areas like mid cap value stocks, we like they're trading at a steep discount already at 2008, 2009 levels. But the fixed income store, there's where a lot of the opportunity, where a lot of the bargains are. You look at investment grade corporate bonds, seeing this big uh, price decline similar to 08, 09 levels. We like that. We like the income there, the total return potential. So again, favoring the bond store over the equity store during this uh, holiday shopping season. Remember when you were a kid and your parents would say, you can't get anything from there. And that's where you wanted to shop. It was the toys. <laughs> they were expensive. Tell me more, John. And then your parents came along and said, you've got to get that. You need a new coat. I feel like that's what Emily Rowland's telling me right now. It's like, don't look at stocks. Go to the bond store. Who wants to shop at the bond store? No one's wanted to shop there for 10 years. Okay, what was the most disappointing gift you've ever gotten? When I was a kid, I didn't like getting clothes. I was very against clothes. And I remember my nan turning around to me and saying, John, in 20 years' time, this is all you'll want. You'll just want nice clothes. You won't want toys. And I was like, yeah, but I'm not, you know. <laughs> but I'm still this age. I'm, I'm not 30 let me now. Be, I'm like let me 10, be there. I don't want clothes, God bless her. So please, if you're listening, love, no clothes. Love clothes now. Love clothes <laughs> now. Although I was thinking the other day, you know what? I'd love a toy car for this Christmas. Just a remote controlled one. I'd love that. I'm <laughs> no actually way. thinking, I'm thinking no about, way. I'm thinking about buying trolling? one for the apartment. You absolutely are trolling I'm serious. Somebody. I'm thinking about buying one for the apartment. Mm. I want like a toy Ferrari, like okay, a Formula sure. One car with a remote control. And you'd build like a little set. Because when I was a kid and I had a toy car, it had that cable attached to it. Do you remember that? And you had to like, yeah, sort yeah, of follow yeah. it because it wasn't right, remote right, control. Right. You want like a real one. I want a proper one, like a really fast one. <laughs> I'm going to go out into Central Park with Tom and play with it. We never said thanks to Emily. Emily, thank you. Have a wonderful Christmas. Let's get to Sabatra Japa, head of US rate strategy at SockGen. Sabatra, your quote from your piece last night. Can I say it was great, by the way? I had a good read of it. Powell stuck to his script of higher for longer after delivering a 50 basis point hike. A hawkish shift in the dot plot failed to nudge yields higher. You went on to say, though, and I think this is real pushback from the consensus view going into 23. We expect a modest rise in yields in Q1 as central banks deliver more hikes. Sabatra, can we start there? What do you think other people are missing going into next year? Well, I think the price action right now is not reflective of what we should expect next year. You're getting into the year end. Liquidity is very poor. People are pairing back positions. But you're looking at, you know, the Bank of England, uh, you know, poised to deliver another 50 basis point rate hike. The ECB is, you know, perhaps going to de- deliver another 50 basis point rate hike. 
So global central banks, broadly speaking, are still going to remain somewhat hawkish for at least the first quarter to first half of next year. So under those circumstances, I don't see why we, you know, yields can't adjust modestly. I'm not calling for significantly higher yields, but I think if you get towards maybe 375 or 4%, that's not, uh, you know, necessarily out of the realm of reason. I feel like the market is, especially ten yields, are very rich as they stand right now. At three fifty. So, can we talk about the front end as well, just so I can get a better idea of where you think the curve is going to be? How you think that's going to evolve next year too? Right now, four twenty-five. How are you thinking about that, Sabadra? Well, I don't think the front end has a lot more room to rise unless we expect um, the, uh, the the Fed to hike beyond five and a quarter percent. But on the long end, the dynamics are very different. You're going to see a lot of corporate issuance come into the market. Uh, you're going to see perhaps uh, you know more even treasury issuance. Uh, typically, those tend to at least uh, support a little bit of a bearish momentum. To that, add add the fact that I think bonds have more yields. So bond yields have more room to rise. I think that ten-year yields could uh, see a push higher, at least in the first quarter, before we start seeing yields decline in the second half. Subhadra. I completely buy what you're saying. So does the Federal Reserve. This is what the Fed is basically telling the market is going to happen. Why are so many people pushing back? I think there's a concern about a recession in the U.S. To me, those concerns are a little bit premature. Uh, at SockGen, we have a little bit of an out-of-consensus view on uh, the recession in the U.S. We think that's an t- early 2024 event. It's not a 2023 event. So my real concern is that the market is not fully appreciating the fact that come middle of next year, if the unemployment rate is not heading towards 4%, we're still stuck at, say, 3.7, 3.8, and wages are still pretty strong, the Fed might have to go beyond five and a quarter. I'm not saying that that's our base case scenario, but that's a risk scenario that the market is not fully appreciating. What's your base scenario, Subhadra, of how long it will take to get back to 2% inflation, given what the Fed has already signaled? I mean, we got the summary of economic projections from the from the Fed. The Fed doesn't expect inflation to get to two percent in 2025. So you're looking at you know a very strong trajectory towards you know inflation remaining sticky after that initial descent. Now we're rejoicing the initial descent, but what if we get to maybe three percent or three and a half percent, and then inflation stays there and it's sticky at that level? At that point, I think the, the Fed is, is still going to remain somewhat hawkish if the employment picture is relatively strong. And there's a good chance the employment picture remains relatively strong, given the fact that we have such a mismatch in the labor market between job openings and, and available employ, employees to, to fill those jobs. So I'm not saying that the labor market is going to be as tight as, as it is right now next year, but I think it could potentially take a lot longer for the employment picture to weaken meaningfully from here on. Emily Rowland was speaking earlier about the fixed income shop. There's a fixed income shop and then there's the stock shop. And the fixed income shop has a lot of good things in it, including investment grade debt, because of how much it has been sold off. That has been on rate story, though, not necessarily the credit side of things. Given your projection that we might not get back down to 2% uh, inflation based on what the Fed is looking at themselves by 2025, does that default rate kind of expectation? Does that premium have to rise substantially from where we are right now? You know, our corporate strategists don't think the default rates rise in this cycle. I think we're in a very different environment, you know, relative to the 2008 uh, timeframe or the great financial crisis. Uh, I think companies are in a very good spot. You know, one metric that we look at for recessions is corporate profit margins. Corporate profit margins are still very, very healthy. 
So for the most part, under those circumstances, it's really hard to envision a scenario where the, de the default rates are going to rise uh, meaningfully from here on. So I think the corporate sector is you know, relatively robust. If we get a lot of supply next year, we're expecting a decent amount of demand from a variety of investors because the yield you get for holding uh, U.S. bonds is quite, uh, you know, quite substantial relative to yields in other regions. So I think for the most part, this is going to be a bond story next year, and it's going to be for, for yield and return. So, Badger, just one final question. What pivot? This was the title that came from the team at SOCGEN. The jumbo rate hikes are over, but we are far away from a monetary policy pivot. Can we just end on where you see terminal rates? Just around this, I think that's a headline for a lot of people. Where's the terminal rate of the Fed? Where's the terminal rate of the ECB? Is it basically in line with what's being priced right now? So for the for the Fed, I think the market and the Fed are, are, are well aligned. I mean, I think the, the market expects the terminal Fed funds rate maybe around five, five and a quarter percent. And maybe it's a little bit underpriced right now uh, for next year, but not by a lot. For the ECB, I think there's still a lot more room for, uh, you know, for uh, the market pricing to rise higher. Our economists in Europe, uh, you know, now expect the ECB to raise rates to 3.75 percent. Wow. I don't think that that's fully, uh, you know, uh, priced into uh, into into uh, into the, uh, the the European uh, bond markets. So that's why we see more potential for the Treasury bond spread to narrow. I mean, it's you know, when we put out our outlook. We had the 10-year Treasury bond spread around 175. We were calling for it to come to around 115. Guess what? This morning, we're already at 130. And we still see more room for that Treasury bond spread to narrow. So I think that the, that it's 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 quite uh, you know hawkish for the ECB. We see more room for bond yields to rise relative to Treasury. I just never, ever thought they'd go this far. No way. Not even nine months ago. Six months ago. Never thought they'd go this far. Sabadra, thank you. Wonderful summary of the last week or so. Looking ahead to 23 as well. Sabadra Shapra of SOCGEN. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising healthcare costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash GreenFestival. There's a lot of people bunched around 4K. So be thankful that our next guest is saying something a little bit different. 4575, it's Sam Stovall at CFRA. So Sam, walk me through why ultimately you're a lot more bullish than the bulk of the street going into 23. Hey, Jonathan and Lisa. Well, I guess some could accuse me of being a Pollyanna, 
Uh, I like to say that when life gives me lemons, I try to make whiskey sours. But what I'm looking at is the expectation that we are likely to fall into a recession. I mean, I'm saying right now that like a deflating holiday lawn ornament, the Powell Press Conference and today's Goldman News have drained investor hopes of avoiding a recession. But I think it's going to be a mild recession. I do think the Fed will continue to raise rates through the first quarter. But then I'm reminded of history saying that on average, eight and a half months after the last rate hike, we see the Fed starting to cut rates. So if we do end up seeing this economy getting weaker than is expected now by the street and also seeing what uh, the Fed responds to, uh, I think investors will be looking across the valley into the second half of 2023 And that's where we end up seeing an upward movement. And the real year-end target also depends on whether we simply retest the 3,500 low on October 12th or we set an even lower low. So what is your downside in the first half? Um, Downside, I'm thinking 3,500 for the S&P 500. That is the... um, October 12th low, it is a Fibonacci retracement level of the prior um, uh, bull market move. Um, And also, I think that that was an area of significant support. Uh, And so that is my first level. So, Sam, if we get down to 3,500 and you're saying the recession is only short and shallow, why do you think the recovery in the equity market is as severe as the one that you're calling for in the second half? Where does that come from? What drives it? Well, uh, I'm a big believer in history. You know, history is a great guide. It's certainly not gospel. Uh, However, when you look to all of the bear markets since World War II that were accompanied by recession, uh, we ended up uh, coming back into a new bull market, meaning rising 20% in an average of only three months. And in five of those nine times, we ended up uh, in a new bull market after only one month. Also, what we found is that 12 months after, the market was higher by 47% on average, with a low watermark being 30%. So basically, it all depends on when that actual bottom takes place. Uh, and my feeling is that we are likely to then see this vacuum evaluations be taken advantage of. Sam, when you talk about history and you talk about post-World War II, have you ever gone back to 1918, right? I mean, is it a playbook that perhaps goes to another era of pandemics and then conflict as well and World War I and everything that was going on then? Is that a better kind of measure of where we could be and the sort of difficulty getting out of some of the issues that are facing not only the market, but also just generally geopolitical uh, peace? No. Uh, And I say that because like uh, the valuing of crypto today, uh, we didn't really have the uh, required earnings information for individual investors to make decisions back prior to uh, the 1930s. Also, we never had government supplied economic data uh, since the late 1940s. So really, uh, you should be looking at data only since 1950 or so. But I go back to World War II simply because that's sort of a, a dividing line. So I would say the reason I don't go back to the 19-teens is because it really was more of a, a gambling situation because you did not have the free flow of financial or government economic data. Is China reopening, Sam, a headwind or a tailwind to your call? I think it's going to be a, a tailwind globally. Uh, expectations at the beginning of 2022 were that we were going to see a 4.6% gain in global GDP. That estimate now is below 3%. The only, and then when you look to 2023, it's even weaker. 
But if you look to China, uh, that's really the only country that is expected to show an improvement in GDP in 2023. Um, to a broader extent, the uh, emerging markets are likely to show an improvement in GDP ne uh, next year, whereas the advanced economies are predicted to show a slowdown. So uh, I would think it's going to actually be a, a, a tailwind for the global economy. It was so much easier when we used to talk about synchronized global growth. Do you remember that? Everything all at the same time. Yeah. Now looking out to 23 is so, so different. Europe recession, US recession, China reopening, those two things colliding. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.